This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. It seems like everything we do has a little bit of forecasting in it, not necessarily just the weather that you see on TV. Things like, will the Fed raise interest rates? What's the impact of some event on Wall Street? And, of course, various sports games that go on across the country. Joining me in the studio, Wharton professors uh, Michael Platt and Barbara Mellers, who are also uh, PIC professors, which is Penn Integrates Knowledge. They are researching what happens to the brain to have us forecast one way or another? Great to have you in the studio because it's interesting is so many things are kind of going on. You're doing a lot of research in right now uh, into kind of the mindset of people and really what goes into uh, the decision-making process uh, of people and how they are, are, are kind of making some of these decisions. Right, exactly. In fact, we are going beyond the mindset. We are going into the mind and into the brain and... The, uh, the sort of basically the whole uh, purpose of this uh, program, our research program, is to try to understand the process by which people make decisions. And if we can understand how that process unfolds, all the myriad uh, factors that go into it, we might be able to shape that decision process and, in fact, maybe help people make better decisions. But obviously part of this, Barbara, is the fact that, as I said, there, there's so much forecasting done on a variety of different things. And... As we were talking about before we uh, went on the air, uh, the forecasting that surrounded the presidential election a few months ago uh, went one way, but obviously in the end, it went a different way. It sure did. And um, I think people look at that, look at the forecasts and say, how did they get it so wrong? But there's only two ways to get a forecast wrong. And that is if you say zero or one. (laughs) There's a whole range of possibilities that don't necessarily mean you're wrong in between that. So uh, some of the – Nate Silver gave some of the most accurate forecasts about whether Trump would win. And his estimates were around um, a 67 percent chance that Hillary would win, 33 percent for Trump. Now, Trump wins. Is that wrong? Yeah. No, he's on the wrong side of maybe, yeah. but 33% of the time, if you ran these counterfactual trials in history, Trump would win, according to Nate Silver. So it's very tough to say some somebody's making the wrong prediction unless right. they go way out on the extremes. But these are people that obviously have done this for a while and, and are smart and, and, and are probably more right than they are wrong. Uh, so what the job that they're doing is they're doing a very important one. And for the most part, they're doing it properly, correct? I think they are. Yeah. And, uh, let's put it like this. The world is an incredibly difficult place to predict. Uh, we gotta, we gotta give them that. Um, I don't think we, any of us realized how close the Trump election would be and how close Brexit would be. Right. Uh, and, um, if it was easy, it would have been done before, is what I think. <laughs> what goes through the brain when, when, when these things are going on? Well, I, think, I mean, one thing I'd like to, to return to this question overall, I mean, I think when we're looking at Trump versus Hillary, that seemed like such a, you know, it was, it was clear that there should be some very, very predictable outcome there. But if you looked what you might call base rates and just the fact that this country is so evenly divided, 
that uh, in the end people really came home and they voted according to their parties for the most part. And so I think that that probably explains a lot of it. Now, when we think about these kinds of, of um, collective decisions, if you will, uh, that those are the most complicated ones that we make because we take into account not only what you might think of as the sort of economic and rational impacts on ourselves, but there are all of these social factors that come into play, emotional factors. I think that right. was really key uh, during this election where you're not even aware of it, but just what the people around you are doing, you're, you're, the impressions that you might give to them if you, for example, say, well, I'm going to vote for Trump. Maybe you privately think you're going to vote for Trump, or maybe right. you don't even know it until you go into the voting booth. The shy of Trump voter yeah, is, right. is the yeah. hypothesis. It yeah. is. That is, right. I think, a big part of it. And so, um, so that, but, you know, we're speculating based on behavior and based on what people say they do or what they intend to do or how they feel about it. What we can do with neuroscience is to potentially provide some real validation or maybe uncovering of the processes that are actually going into that that decision. And so, so many things have to come together, but in the end, you only can do one thing or another, pull this lever or that one. Well, the, the emotion part of it, I think, is obviously maybe the key component, especially what we saw a few months ago, is the fact that you had so many people that were so emotional about one candidate or the other, and now we have people that are emotional about the candidate that won, whether you know he is doing something good or something bad. So anger or you know, that that was a very powerful emotion in this, was it not? Um, I Absolutely, I think. I mean, many, it's hard to distinguish many of these emotions. I think people are certainly very worked up. Uh, they are very uh, keen to believe in their own um, side. Yeah. And so I think that's another thing is that it's very difficult to take the other side, right, to view things th through the eyes of another individual. I think that's something that, that, that Barb has worked on as well. I mean, to a certain degree, not another individual, but to think about things from a different perspective. Yeah, when we look at the best soup, at the best forecasters, who, who we we've called super forecasters in yeah. the research that we've done, um, they tend to be much more analytical, much more rational, and uh, they score higher on measures of actively open-minded thinking. So uh, I think the, these folks, who also were on the wrong side of maybe in our research yeah. with, when it came to Hillary and Trump. Um, uh, <clears throat> although actually not much more than, than Nate Silver was, which right. I think From is... From 538.com, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is uh, uh, saying something really good about them. Um, they they do step back and take an analytical look at it and uh, I think try to keep keep emotions out of it, or maybe not out of it, but at least not getting in the way of it. Right. Well, it, it's, it's a hard thing, I, I think... Yeah, well, let me ask you this. Is it a hard thing to keep emotions out of some of these decisions? I mean, some of these people are obviously very good, but I would think for the masses in general, to be able to keep emotions out of it may be a, a challenge for many of them that, that they may not be able to, to tackle. Well, well I mean, frankly, that goes against biology. Emotions evolved yeah. for a very important reason. And, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a simple and intuitive notion to think of sort of our emotional self and our rational self is being completely separated, when in fact our brains integrate those processes in every time that you make a decision. So yeah. emotions are important. They're an important part of the forecasting process. I mean, think, essentially you should think about your brain is not just making predictions about the election, but about every single thing that you do, every single event that might happen in the world, and emotions that is sort of, are they more rewarding, more pleasant, more aversive than you might have expected? Social emotions, jealousy, fear, anger, et cetera, are all going to shape that process of making a prediction and responding to the outcome of a prediction. 
And the emotions help us to learn from those outcomes and, and hopefully make better decisions in the future. So that's sort of my, my <laughs> evolutionary psychology, uh, neuroscience sort yeah. of view on it. Um, uh -huh. but, but then, okay. again, I think the, to the degree that you can potentially uh, at least be aware of those emotions, you yeah. might be able to be a little more rational. Right. No, they're, they're, sig they're signals that um, we ought to be paying attention to something, and um, that's, that's essential. And I think the... the the key, we're, we know we're learning a lot right now about how to make better forecasts. Yeah. And um, that should, that's going to influence all aspects of our life because we're constantly making predictions about who we want to spend time with and uh, how we want to spend our money and who we want to vote for when it comes to president, the, the U.S. president. But um, uh, when we can get predictions that are more accurate, even slightly more accurate, and use those in our decisions, I think we're heading in the right direction. Do you think it's possible to, to be able to get to a point where we can have people that are accurate 100% of the time? No, uh, no, yeah. no, yeah. no. The world's a complicated place. So yeah. uh, I, if that ever happens, I, you know, we're all going to be dead, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> we're joined here uh, in studio by uh, Michael Platt and uh, Barbara Mellers, uh, who uh, are uh, professors here at Wharton, but also uh, part of uh, Penn Integrates Knowledge, uh, the PIC professors here at the uh, university. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. When this was all playing out during the election, I, it was interesting. I think most people were watching it, you know, watching it state by state as it was playing out. And the expectation through the forecasting didn't change that much, even as some of the states early on went for Mr. Trump rather than Mrs. Clinton, as were kind of expected, which I found interesting that, you know, the process of adapting your prediction along the way didn't fall. And that may have very, very well had an emotional uh, angle to it yeah. as well. Yeah, I think we had uh, correlated errors is how we call it when it comes to making predictions. Um, we erred on one and that had an effect on, on the next one and yeah. so forth. I, anecdotally, I've heard that Trump told his family uh, on election night, yep. get ready for a rough night. Yeah. yeah. So even he wasn't expecting uh, a victory, I don't think. Michael? Oh no! I mean, I mean, absolutely. This is. I mean, it was that that evening was pretty interesting. If you're sort of watching the prediction meter, um, which was you know pointing toward Hillary, toward toward, toward Hillary, toward Hillary, and then somewhere between eight and nine o'clock, made this very rapid switch as some data came in. And I mean, I thought that was that that the speed with which that happened. Yeah was was really surprising and shocking and I think that you know that's one of the factors that really I think impacted a lot of people right that's what makes it so emotional is like the switch right that yeah your prediction was completely wrong <laughs> in this case well it was a really close election yes yeah and there's no you know and some some ways you could say she won you know yeah uh, I, I, th I think people are thinking more along the lines of popular vote than they are electoral college when they're, when they're saying, who do you think is going to win the election? And that, by the way, turns out to be a better question than who are you going to vote for? Uh, there's been some research by uh, Wharton people here that, that shows um, that when you try to predict what other people will do in an election, you could get a more accurate forecast than if you say, what are you going to do? Wow, that's a, isn't that a challenge, though, to be able to kind of gauge that? Well, you know, you, 
you live in a world that's clearly biased, but you yeah. talk to a lot of people. Yeah. And if you ask a lot of people who are talking to a lot of other different people, maybe you'll get a better global estimate of of sentiment and well, and thought. There's a, I mean, there's an interesting kind of, I mean, it's not directly related to the election, but I think there's a very interesting connection to some of the work that's been going on in decision neuroscience, uh, some of it being done here at Penn. And in the last couple of years, there have been, I don't know, half a dozen, perhaps more studies that have shown that if you basically take uh, two dozen college students and put them in an MRI machine, so you're scanning their brains, you're taking yeah. snapshots of brain activity, especially in areas that we think are important for kind of the emotional processes that contribute to decision making, that in fact, you can by just listening, looking at that activity, you can predict market level behavior. So, and in a way that goes well beyond what you can get from asking those same individuals, what would you buy? What do you like? Yeah. What do you want? In fact, there's a brain signal there that may be more accurate that's inaccessible to your own verbal report. You can't really, you know, you can't put your finger on it. You can't state it. Right. But yet you can aggregate it across a couple dozen individuals and you can predict you know, how much, you know, how many people will, will go to see a particular movie uh, in, you know, in the next six months. One of the things that, that you're working on that uh, I understand is involving like social interaction and uh, to a degree how we can kind of make better teams, uh, which I find is, is also interesting because uh, that's, that's kind of a challenge that a lot of corporations are having right now because they want to have better teams to obviously be able to be more successful and, and improve their bottom line. Right. I mean, this is actually, I think, a, a very nice um, correspondence between the work that Barb does and the work that we do. We are very interested in the brain processes that allow us to uh, read the cues of other individuals and essentially to connect with them, empathize with them maybe, and respond in a way that is, is sort of synchronized and and better functioning, perhaps allowing us to make better decisions. And so we are really examining this in very sort of, sort of minute ways using uh, a whole suite of techniques, yeah. from everything from measuring uh, communication and voice to, to measuring uh, peripheral uh, measures of arousal, like your pupil dilation or how red your face might be, the tone of your voice. Uh, and we can connect that to, you know, in some cases, we might connect that to various kinds of brain signals that we could, that we know uh, their origin uh, within the brain. And we hope by doing this, we can not only get a more accurate and biologically uh, valid um, understanding of how we connect and how we might form better teams, but then we could use that as a way to evaluate different approaches for constructing teams. So, you know, there are basically most of those approaches, as I understand it, are based on intuition and experience. Sure. So, yeah. you know, when we, you know, in whether it's the military or first responders, you know, they have a way of doing this that is, you know, and I'm not saying that's that it's wrong. It's just that we might be able to fine tune it or come up with better ways. Barb? That's interesting f to me for a lot of reasons. One of them is that uh, in our research, we found with randomized controlled trials that people make much significantly better forecasts when they're working in teams yeah. than when they're working by themselves. And um, uh, then when you put the sort of track people and put the, the, high, the high accuracy folks together in their own teams, you get this surge of accuracy that goes way beyond what you'd expect. So one of the things that Michael and I have talked about is um, 
taking a look at the neuroscience of super forecasters relative to regular forecasters. Sure. And maybe it's part of this um, social interaction that's going on with the team. Um, working within themselves. Working within themselves, yeah. not wanting to disappoint each other. Right. Um, wanting to help each other, wanting... It's this wonderful uh, competition cooperation arrangement with teams because you, you try to help your team and then you're also competing with all the other teams out there. So and, is, is it also a little bit... Of, you're, you're with like... I don't want to say like-minded individuals, but similar individuals. So they have an understanding of... Maybe a little better understanding of what that other person is thinking as well. They work with their teams for a long time and... Um, most of the teams, not 100%, click. And they start to get to know the expertise of each other. They know, uh, you know, I know when to listen to you and when to to listen to Michael. And and, um, it starts to coalesce in a way that uh, is really quite interesting and remarkable. And I think that's the level at which Michael's trying to study it. What exactly is going on when these teams coalesce? And... um, I mean, I'm we, really kind of. We should I'm look really, at super We should do this. I mean, teams. I think there. This yeah. would be a fantastic study, and may lead to some insights into what what it takes to be a super forecaster. Can we identify them, perhaps, well ahead of time, right? Yeah. Or and, understanding something about the neurology? Could we fine tune the process of training forecasters? Right? When when are you able to gauge at least right now when somebody kind of falls into that category of being a super forecaster? Um, well, definitionally, w- definitionally, we uh, define them as super forecasters after at the end of each year. Those were the okay. top two percent of thousands of people who were forecasting for us. Right. But you know, it turned out uh, that we could predict v- relatively quickly who was going to be good and who wasn't. Right. Um, actually, I looked at the first twenty-five questions. And over a two-year period, and took scores. The top twenty top uh, scores on the first twenty-five questions, hundred bottom scores on the top twenty-five questions, and watched to see what happened to these groups over two years. And the answer was they stayed remarkably far apart yeah. uh, over time. So that says, hey, maybe there's something like an underlying forecasting skill. Right. Which we didn't know about before, you know, before the last five years or something. Uh, we know there's an underlying IQ, there are underlying personality traits. Yeah. But forecasting skill, what's with that, you know? So I wonder whether that forecasting skill is very domain specific to the kinds of problems you're giving them or whether it extends yeah. to other areas outside in daily life. And, well, you know, Specifically that's... targeted areas that, that you would want to focus on, correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, well, the it's interesting. The forecasting questions that we give our our folks are all over mm. the map: mm. elections, wars, international treaties, diseases. Yeah. You name it. Yeah. You cannot be an expert on all of these things. So you're you're in a sense a super generalist, and that's how I see the su- the super forecasters. They aren't uh, subject at or subject matter experts in a particular domain of China, for example. But they huh. are wonderful at figuring out where to get good information, esoteric information, huh. sharing it with each other, dividing the labor, and, and figuring out how to come up with an aggregate after discussion and so forth that 
that's way above what we would have expected based on the general population. So when they are reaching a category of being a super forecaster, they are right on these topics. What I, I don't know what the percentage would be of all those questions that you just mentioned on, on such a wide range of topics. Well, I estimated that. And uh, I over five years, they were on the right side of maybe, which is one definition right. for being correct, 85% of the time. Right, yeah. And these are hundreds of questions, millions of forecasts. Um, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. You know? And uh, these super forecasters were actually better, this is the good news and the bad news, better than intelligence analysts forecasting <laughs> on the same exact questions with access to classified information. Wow. So, I mean, that's that would that would lead you to believe that that I mean, this could be a, a a future pattern, a future career for some of these people down the road. Well, you know what? They were all offered jobs if they wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would imagine the, the, when when you hear those numbers and and because of the fact that they're talking about so many different topics, to, you know, for somebody to be able to be proficient on China or the market or, you know, so many or unemployment rates, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. you name it. The, the mind it just I mean, you have to just, you're shaking. I don't your have head a good right answer for it. Right. I mean, exactly. That's why I'd love to people? see yeah. who these people are. I'd love to get a get yeah. a look at their yeah. brains because right. Um, right. they're bound to be very, very interesting people. I, mean, I think the thing yeah. that I mean, one one point that you made earlier that that really stuck out to me is that. They're both uh, high on open-mindedness, and then there is something potentially social about the way that they can interact with teams. And there is, we now know, within the brain, there are sort of overlapping circuits that uh, deal with others that allow us to sort of respond to and connect to other people, and that seem to be also important for exploration, creativity, to a certain degree, open-mindedness. And I wonder whether they've kind of got the sweet spot of interaction between those circuits. Good question. You know, we, we should find out. I, yes. I, I think we're doing this interview and we're leaving more questions than we are actually giving, getting answers <laughs> at the end of this. Yeah. Well, I guess then what is the next step in, in the research for you uh, looking at, at super forecasting? And and obviously it seems like, we, you know, we have the election, but there's always, as I said at the top, always more stories, incidents, whatever it may be, that can be potential potentially forecast by people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, one of the projects that grew out of this tournament that I've been talking about is a new project that involves hybrid forecasting. So um, we have lots and lots more data than ever before. Yeah. We're living in the big data world, and we have uh, fabulous forecasters now from the human side. What's the best way to put all of that together, you know? Uh, we have clever ways of, of, of predicting diseases now, uh, purchases of Kleenex and uh, this, the number of cars in the parking lot at hospitals yeah. where people are going to get uh, medical treatment. Google searches for flu symptoms. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> now there ought to be a way for us to combine that and improve accuracy over and beyond super forecasters and machine data by itself. 
I get the sense that some of these people, as you said, we get offered jobs. Many of them will probably be very uh, interesting people when we come around to the next election cycle in four years to try and see if we can figure this out <laughs> a little bit better than what happened uh, here just a few months ago. Well, they are still forecasting, many of them, and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll be able to share their predictions with you. It's great seeing you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank great you. See you too. Mike, great to see you. Yeah, Thank you very much. You Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Michael Platt and, and Barbara Meller joining us here in studio. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.